I, uh, I do find somewhat of a rich irony in the idea that I would be speaking in a sermon series called Start the Party, given my own personal um, robust commitment to both uh, being an introvert and being a homebody. Those things are um, possibly two of my highest values in life, probably because most of us meet you know, I interact with most of us in an environment like this. Maybe the idea that I'm an introvert is surprising to some of you, but there is absolutely no question that my fundamental commitment in life is to be an introvert and homebody. There are, there are times when Krista will work a weekend and I will literally come home from work on a Thursday afternoon or a Thursday evening. Friday is my day off. Saturday I have off. And I will literally, I'll come home from work on Thursday, change into my pajamas, and literally the next time I change back into clothes is on Sunday morning to come into an environment like this. Like I, I do not feel any need for days at a time to step outside uh, the front door of my house. I could live in my pajamas in my house for a long period of time and be perfectly content to just be surrounded by, you know, the people who do life with me in my uh, little house. Here. That's, that's, that's just who I am. I'm, <clears throat> excuse me, I preached on um, New Year's Eve in the morning. And I remember saying on New Year's Eve that I was hoping to celebrate New Year's Eve in my pajamas in bed watching the ball drop. And I'm delighted to report to you that on New Year's Eve, I was at home in my pajamas in bed with a book, TV off, before 9 p.m. And absolutely happy as a clam. This is, this is just how uh, I do life. I, I did a personality assessment recently. And uh, it said that my fundamental posture towards life and the world was withdraw. <laughs> that I just, I prefer to do life with a really small closed circle of friends and to do it really quietly. That's just who I am. That life is a bit of a solo sport. And I wonder how, not, not just how many introverts I'm talking to in the room. For, for us, maybe this is a very worthwhile series for us to challenge and stretch ourselves, though I know it's easy to be an extrovert who uh, avoids community as well. But I wonder even at a more fundamental level, how many of us treat our life with God like a solo sport? Who say like, my life with Jesus, my faith is a private deal, it's just between me and God and leave it at that, when that is actually fundamentally the opposite of what a life of faith is all about. That's kind of what this series, Start the Party, is all about. It's about <clears throat> the ways in which parties are fundamental to our spiritual life. Now, to be clear, we're using the word party. Uh, we're, we're using a definition that was uh, coined by a guy named Reggie Joyner, who, who uh, wrote a little ebook, just 20 or 30 pages, called Sometimes It Takes a Party. And we're going to post the link to that ebook on all of our Southridge social media channels so you can download it and read it. But the definition of party that Reggie uses is the one we're using in this series, which is coming together, being together to celebrate serve and enjoy each other in a way that makes life better. And last week we saw that that was fundamental to who Jesus was and what Jesus was all about. That it was fundamental to 
what the church is and what the church is all about that is fundamental to what it means to be a follower of Jesus and what we're all about individually because being together like that changes lives. And so what we're going to do over the next three weeks is we're going to pick apart this definition a little bit. This morning we're going to talk about the kind of togetherness that celebrates, serves, and enjoys other people. Next week we're going to talk about Each other is the language. So who are the each other that we do togetherness with? And then last week, we're going to talk about what it means to make life better uh, through the act of being together. And so we're going to talk this morning about the kind of togetherness that celebrates, serves, and enjoys the people that God has put in our life. And the reason why this is so fundamental for us to come to understand this is because as people who worship Jesus Christ... The Bible says that the God who reveals himself in Jesus Christ is fundamentally defined by togetherness. <coughs> Sorry, I'm struggling with my voice a little bit this morning. Um, the Bible tells us, or Christian theology tells us, that the God of the Bible is what theologians call a trinity. A tri, which means three, unity, which means one. The God, the one God that exists has been eternally existent in the form of three distinct individual persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who together exist not as three gods but as one God. Couple of side notes on that. If you're new to this faith conversation and the idea of a trinity of one God that exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, if that's just new and weird and hard to wrap your mind around, um, just let me tell you that it is the same for all of the rest of us who've been around a long time. God is mystery. And there are some aspects of God that we just don't fully understand. And the fact that God can be both one God and three persons. Some of you have literally never seen me drink out of this water bottle before. Um, That's just mystery to us. And we're just trying to figure it out. And you can never figure it out. The other thing I would want to say is that the idea of Father and Son and Holy Spirit, the fact that Father and Son are gendered nouns, that they're masculine nouns, just that those are just metaphors from Scripture. They do not imply that God is a gender, that God is male, that God is a man, or God is a white man, or God is an old man, or Jesus is a white man, because none of those things are true. That everything that what we mean by masculinity and everything that we mean by femininity, which are both social constructs, all of that is wrapped up and encapsulated and emerges from who God is. God is greater than all of it. But what God is, my, this is my only point, what God is fundamentally at God's core is a, a single God who has existed for all of eternity in three indivisible persons who are joined together into one. Probably the, the only metaphor that I can Uh, even imagine that could begin to help make sense of this, at least out of my own experience, is the metaphor of marriage. That uh, I said last week that Chris and I, on this past Wednesday, would be celebrating our 14th wedding anniversary, and that this past Wednesday we did, in fact, celebrate our 14th wedding anniversary, so I'm a person of my word. And uh, being married for 14 years has not changed the fact 
that I am still the same unique individual self that I was 14 years ago when I got married to Krista, much to Krista's chagrin in some ways. Krista is not anything other than the unique individual self that she was 14 years ago when we got married, much to my delight. And yet in some mysterious way, over the course of these 14 years, we have also become this singly indivisible thing called a couple. The Bible says the two become one. There is a, there is a sharedness, a togetherness, a singleness to us together as a couple that exists at the same time as our individual selves that have not been lost in the process. <clears throat> and this is something of what it's like to say that the God who exists, <clears throat> excuse me, who reveals himself in Jesus is a God who at his core, at God's core, is togetherness personified. The core reality truth of the universe is community. And the way the Bible says that the Trinity is joined together as one is through the mutual act of love. The early church theologians used to use a Greek word to describe it. The word is perichoresis. And in Greek, the word just means to make space. To clear things away so that a space is made to be inhabited by something or someone else. And they, they used to say that the three members of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, parent, child, and spirit, the three persons that make up the one God were united to each other by the fact that they had each made space within themselves to be indwelt by the others. You, you get a, a sense of this in John chapter 10. This is Jesus talking to the religious leaders, he says, don't believe that I am who I say I am unless I do the works of my father in heaven, the God who is in heaven. But if I do these works, even if you don't believe me, believe the works, and this is the point, that you may know and understand that the father is in me and I in the Father. Jesus says, you need to understand the relationship that I have with God in heaven is that I indwell the person and the being of God and God indwells my person and being. We have each cleared out a space. We have withdrawn ourselves to create a space where the other person can inhabit our soul, our identity, be a, become a part of who we are. So to go back to marriage, over the course of 14 years of marriage, as Krista and I have learned to love each other, which the act of love is just that clearing out, making a space for the other person inside your soul and in your identity and who you are. As we've learned to become uh, or as we've learned to love one another over 14 years, we have become united together. We have become one through that process of love. This is why couples, as they are married longer, they end up being more and more like each other. They absorb each other into their very being, into their soul, into their identity. I'll give you a stupid example. When we were first married, I noticed that Krista, when she was very focus when she was thinking hard about something or when she was uh, very focused on a task she would always stick out her tongue in this very unique way she would she would do that 
And it took me a long time to kind of figure out what it was that she was doing. I, I didn't know if she was just sticking out her tongue or whether she was curling it up. Turns out that she's sort of curling it underneath. It took me a while. I used to make fun of her for doing it all the time. And then suddenly, about a year ago, I discovered that when I was reading something that required all my concentration, when I was focused on something that required a lot of concentration, all of a sudden I realized I was sticking out my tongue exactly the same way that my wife did. And not because I had studied it and, and had decided on, I realize how she's doing it and this is something that I like to mimic. I think I would like to be like her in this way, follow her example. And so I made a conscious decision in specific environments, in specific ways to do what my wife, no, none of that is true. Over the course of 14 years of marriage, I have in ways by making space for her, I have absorbed her into my being. She now lives in me and I live in her in a way that just wasn't true in the early days of our marriage. And this is what it means. This is what the Bible means by togetherness. Right? And the reason this matters that the ultimate reality of the universe, that the God who is, is a God that is defined by a togetherness that is rooted in love, is that we are created to be like God. In Genesis chapter 1, it says this, then, then God said, let us make humankind in our image and in our likeness. So God created humankind in God's own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. That there's a, a, an essential sense in which the way we are to be in the world is to be like the way that God is. And there is ultimately within God a plurality that is fundamental to who God is. He says, let us make humankind in our image. The idea of community is built into the fundamental nature of who God is. We can't be like God without being in community. Uh, there's a second creation story. The very next chapter. Genesis chapter 2. Where in Genesis chapter 1. God creates all these things. And it says God created this. And it was good. And God created that. And it was good. It was good. It was good. It was good. In Genesis chapter 2. There's one instance where it says. But that wasn't good. The only thing that wasn't good. In the entire creation narrative. Was when God created a human being that was alone. And so God created another human being that was like the first human being and yet complementary to the first human being. They were similar and yet different. Um, opposites attract and birds of a feather flock together so that they could form community together with each other. God formed a second human being to create a society in order to rescue humanity from aloneness because being together is fundamental to what it means to be a human being. In fact, you can see it in the verse that we read that the image of God is male and female. That it is the diversity of humanity brought together in relationship with each other that creates the image of God. Which means that we can only be the people that God has created us to be by being engaged in loving togetherness with other people. Period. 
In fact, the very act of being engaged in loving togetherness with other people is the very bottom line nature of what it means to be like God. There's a uh, Jewish theologian named Martin Buber who says, the concentration and fusion of wholeness in a being cannot be accomplished by me alone. It cannot be accomplished without me. I can only be an I if I have a you. Buber says, I can only be the person I was created to be when I have a you to be in loving togetherness with. To be in a relationship where, where my intention is to, is to clear out a space within my heart and my soul and my life for you to come and to take up residence and for you to make a space in your heart and soul and life for who I am to come and take up residence in you in order to expand the scope of who we are by the way we grow in relationship with each other. This is why the Apostle Paul, writing to a community about how to be a community, says this in Romans 15, 7, accept one another then, just as Christ has accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. Probably a better translation of the word accept is the word welcome. It's a word of hospitality. It's a party word. It means to receive, to embrace, to invite into your home, to clear out a space in your world in order to accommodate the presence of somebody else who's been invited in. Paul says this is the only way to be a God kind of community, to live a God life in community is to open up a space and to welcome you, the other person in who is also going to open up a space and welcome you. And he says, welcome one another. Right? This reciprocal opening up where we invite somebody in to settle into our soul and their ideas begin to expand our way of looking at the world. Their generosity pushes the boundaries of our generosity their courage and their empathy begin to enlarge our courage and our empathy the way that they live their love for Jesus infectiously begins to contaminate our way of living our love for Jesus their presence in us begins to shape us into something that we weren't before. Paul says, do this for each other because this is exactly what Jesus has done for you. That Jesus made a space in himself for you. This is what the Bible means when it says that we are, those who put their faith in Jesus, are in Christ. We have become a part of the very being of Jesus. This is what it means to participate in the body of Christ, which is the church. When we become a part and a participant of the community, we become a part of who Jesus is in the world. We become a part of shaping the presence of Jesus in the planet, even as Jesus is in us and shaping who we are becoming. Jesus did this for us. He did this by, by uh, making a space in his sovereignty. He peeled back his sovereignty to become a servant. 
He peeled back his divinity to become a human. He peeled back the overflow of his life in order to die for your sin and for mine, to forgive and to transform us, to make us new people. My point is this, being together to celebrate, serve, and enjoy each other is fundamental to what it means to be who God is, to be formed into the image of what God is like. And in fact, uh, Paul says, it is the way that we bring praise to God. When we live these lives of being together to celebrate, serve, and enjoy each other in a way that makes life better. In fact, the flip side of that is also true, that when we don't do that, we somehow become something other than what God has created us to be. Jesus' friend John writes it this way in John chapter 4, verse 20. He says, whoever claims to love God, yet hates a brother or sister, is a liar. The person who says, I love God, but is not open to creating a space in their heart and soul to experience that kind of life-changing togetherness in which we celebrate, serve, and enjoy each other. The person who's unwilling to do that, John says, doesn't really love God, at least not with their whole heart and soul and mind and strength yet. To the degree that we don't love each other, we don't love God. Now, we, the, the word hate is a strong word, which is what my mother used to say. And we use that word to kind of let ourselves off the hook, right? We don't hate people. We're not bigots. We're not racists. We're not sexist, right? We're not homophobic. We don't want to hurt people. We're not violent. We don't join a, a hate group. Like, we don't hate people. Except that, you know what the New Testament definition of the word hate is? To uh, disregard, to treat someone with disregard, disfavor, and disrespect. If you treat someone in a way that ignores their presence, that treats them as nothing. If you treat someone in a way that offers them less than your best. If you treat someone in a way that diminishes their dignity as a human being. To disregard, dishonor, disrespect. To dis people. That's what it means to hate. And John says, you cannot love God and dis people at the same time. That anyone who disregards, dishonors, and disrespects other human beings does not genuinely love God. He gives two reasons. He says, For whomever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they've not seen. John says, listen, if you can't imagine loving a flesh and blood human being that's right in front of your face that you are making eye contact with, if you can't love another person standing right in your presence, but you treat them with disregard, dishonor, (coughs) and disrespect, then there's absolutely no way that it's possible for you to love a God that you've never seen. If you can't even love this person right in front of you, there's no way you can love a God that you've never seen. Secondly, he says, and God has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. John says, secondly, God has told us what he wants from us. 
That we would love our brother and sister. And if you can't do the one thing that God has asked you to do, which is to love your brother and sister, to love the flesh and blood human beings that you make eye contact with every day. If you can't do the one thing that God has asked you to do, how can you say that you love God if all you do is disobey him? You don't love God, you disobey him. Right? And make no mistake, this is the one thing that God has asked us to do. It's all over the New Testament. Jesus is asked, what's the most important commandment? And he says, well, you got to love God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. And people go, awesome, I do that. My faith is, you know, great with God. I worship God. I pray to God. I read the scriptures. I memorize the scriptures. I tell other people about Jesus. Like I do all sorts of God things. God and I are awesome. And Jesus says, now, wait a minute. There's a second one that goes with it. You can't take it apart from it. And that's you got to love everybody else as much as you love yourself. If you do those two things, then you're being the person that God created you to be. (coughs) You can't do one without the other. The way you love God is by loving people. And whenever you love people, you are loving God. That's what Jesus says. John chapter 13, Jesus says to his disciples, a new commandment I give to you that you would love each other. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples, that you love each other. How does everybody know that we're Jesus' disciples? What's the only marker of what it looks like to follow Jesus? The only thing you need to identify someone as a follower of Jesus? They love each other. They're committed to a lifestyle, being together to celebrate, serve, and enjoy the other person in a way that makes life better. The Apostle Paul says in Galatians chapter 5, the only thing that counts, the only thing that counts, the only thing that counts. When God is looking for thing that counts, there's only one. The only thing that counts is that your faith in Jesus expresses itself in love for other people. Nothing else matters. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Paul says you could be a super Christian. You could be a role model in the way you worship God. (coughs) Excuse me, in the way you pray. You could close your eyes, raise your hand, ball your eyes out every single church service. You could be a super Christian in the way you know the scriptures inside and out. You've memorized the whole book. You know all the doctrines. You could even teach them to other people. You could be a super Christian in your generosity for the poor. You're single-handedly eradicating world hunger. You're willing to die for your faith but he said, there's no love. If, if, if that's not coming out of a place of loving people, actual flesh and blood people, you are nothing, you've done nothing, your faith is nothing, you have nothing. That's not faith. That's something else. Literally, Jesus says, the only thing he's asked us to do is to love each other. And it affects the way we speak to and about each other in John chapter, James chapter 3. <clears throat> Jesus' brother says, With the tongue, we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth comes praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? Jesus says, if you love people, it affects how you speak about people. You can't praise God and curse people at the same time. That just doesn't work. So imagine, you know, we're in this environment right now, and we've been singing songs of praise to God, and we've been praying some prayers, and we're, you know, whatever. You're here loving God wholeheartedly, emotionally, passionately, whatever it is. 
James says, now imagine you walk out the door. You can't be in this environment and sing these love songs to Jesus and then walk out the back door and trash the worship leader for the songs they picked. Trash the sound guy because it was too loud. Trash whoever decided what temperature the room was going to be. You can't trash the preacher for what they said or trash the person sitting beside you who's wearing too much cologne or trash the hypocrite in the other section who's raising their hands but you know what they did last week or trash the person whose outfit you feel is inappropriate for church. You cannot worship God and then use your mouth to trash people to disregard them, to dishonor them, and disrespect them in the way that you speak about them and the way you speak to them. James says that just doesn't work. The same mouth can't be used for both. In fact, he says a a spring cannot give both fresh and salt water. If I grabbed this water bottle one day and took a big swig of water and it was all salt water in my mouth, I would have to draw the obvious conclusion that the water in that bottle came from somewhere else. Because my beloved Perrier Springs don't produce salt water. James says you can, <coughs> you can say that you love God, but if you use your tongue to disregard, dishonor, and disrespect other people, that statement's just not true. It, you have to talk the talk of love. And, James says, you have to walk the walk of love. In James chapter 2, it says, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says some, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, it's not accompanied by action, is dead. James says, let's say you're confronted by somebody in desperate need. No food, no clothes. They're in desperate poverty. Let's expand the scope. They're in desperate emotional poverty. They're just at the end of their tether. They're in desperate relational poverty. They're dying out of thirst for friendship. They're dying of loneliness, starving for affection. Let's say they're in desperate poverty of meaning and purpose. They have no idea why they're here. They're in desperate poverty of a vocation. They don't know what it is they're supposed to do with their life. They're in desperate poverty of, of self-esteem and self-worth. They don't feel like they matter to anybody. And James says, you can get involved in the conversation. You can listen to their story and look at their eyes and weep with them and feel all the feels and have your heart broken and even say to them, listen, I'll be praying for you and that things turn around real fast. But if you have the means to help them and you don't do anything about their situation, your faith is dead. In fact, he starts by saying, can that kind of faith even save a person? Friends, this is the point. Jesus lived a life and called us to live a life of togetherness that celebrates, serves, and enjoys the people God has put in our life. That's fundamental to who God is. It is fundamental to what God has created us to be. We cannot be the people that God has created us to be until we are becoming them in togetherness with each other as we learn to celebrate, serve, 
and enjoy each other in the kind of community that radiates to the world what God is like. The stakes are really that high. We learn to be these people. We long and strive to be these people. Or we become something other than what Jesus died for us to become. And make no mistake about it, in my life, in your life, whatever, we need all of Jesus for this to happen. Jesus didn't just die to forgive and transform us. He was raised from the dead. He fills by the power of his Holy Spirit his, our lives with his life. As we pull ourselves back and make a space for him to live in us. And it takes all of him The Apostle Paul says, it's no longer I who live, but Jesus who lives in me. Since Jesus is the one who pioneered this life of togetherness to celebrate, serve, and enjoy the people that God has put in our lives. Let's pray that Jesus will fill us with that same spirit uh, in our lives and together with each other. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Jesus Christ, Holy Spirit, the three of you live in loving community, in in sacrificial togetherness with each other as fundamental to who you are. And you've invited us to be just like you. God, I confess and I suspect I'm not alone that there are lots of things in me that hinder me and prevent me at times from even wanting to be that kind of person. But would you fill us, me and us, with the life of your spirit, God, to fundamentally transform us from the inside out so that with each other's help, we could learn to to draw ourselves back and make space for others in our midst to experience the togetherness of love in a way that transforms who we are. Only you can do this in us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.